Let me open in prayer. Dear Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for these people. And thank you for your word. We pray that you would take this time to implant it in our hearts, that you would shape us to be your faithful people in the world. Amen. So James 5, 1 through 6. Come now, you rich. Weep and cry aloud over the miseries that are coming on you. Your riches have rotted and your clothing has become moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have rusted and their rust will be a witness against you. It will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have hoarded treasure. Look, the pay you have held back from the workers who mowed your fields cries out against you. And the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived indulgently and luxuriously on the earth. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person, although he does not resist you. So apparently, as Dave was preparing this sermon series and he got to the part about rust-bearing witness and consuming flesh like fire, he thought, I think this would be a good weekend for a pastor's retreat. <laughs> and on the Super Bowl, no less. <laughs> what self-respecting person cares about the bangles anyway? Right? <laughs> so Dave, when you listen to this, we are even. I'm just joking, of course. I appreciate Dave, and I appreciate the approach to preaching that he takes, um, because as he tries to preach through as much of as many books of the Bible as he can, it means we get to these harder passages, um, the kinds of things that are often overlooked as people might be preparing um, topical sermon series. But the Bible is full. It speaks forcefully and often about riches, about injustice, about the kinds of things that James is addressing here. And as people who submit ourselves to the authority of these words, people who believe this to be God's word, we do well to look these passages in the face and see what they would speak to us, right? And so in that vein, I'm going to read a handful of passages from throughout the Bible that resonate with what James is saying here. Um, we read from Isaiah 5 this morning about the vineyard and how, while God had hoped that it would produce good fruit, instead it, it produced um, cries and oppression. And Jeremiah speaks um, to the king of Judah. And he says in Jeremiah 22, Woe to him who builds his palace by unrighteousness, his upper rooms by injustice, making his own people work for nothing, not paying them for their labor. He says, I will build myself a great palace with spacious upper rooms. So he makes large windows in it, panels it with cedar, and decorates it in red. Does it make you a king to have more and more cedar? Did not your father have food and drink? He did what was right and just. So all went well with him. He defended the cause of the poor and needy. And so all went well. Is that not what it means to know me, declares the Lord? But your eyes and your heart are set only on dishonest gain, on shedding innocent blood, and on oppression and extortion. 
Therefore, this is what the Lord says about Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah. They will not mourn for him. Alas, my brother. Alas, my sister. They will not mourn for him. Alas, my master. Alas, his splendor. He will have the burial of a donkey, dragged away and thrown outside the gates of Jerusalem. In Amos 5, Amos addresses Israel, the northern kingdom. He says, seek the Lord and live, or he will sweep through the tribes of Joseph like a fire. It will devour them, and Bethel will have no one to quench it. There are those who turn justice into bitterness and cast righteousness to the ground. He who made the Pleiades and Orion, who turns midnight into dawn and darkens the day into night, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out over the face of the land, Yahweh is his name. With a blinding flash, he destroys the stronghold and brings the fortified city to ruin. There are those who hate the one who upholds justice in court and detest the one who tells the truth. You levy a straw tax on the poor and impose tax on their grain. Therefore, you, though you have built stone mansions, you will not live in them. Though you have planted lush vineyards, you will not drink their wine. For I know how many are your offenses and how great your sins. There are those who oppress the innocent and take bribes and deprive the poor of justice in the courts. Therefore, the prudent keep silent in such times, for the times are evil. Seek good, not evil, that you may live. And then the Lord God Almighty will be with you, just as you say he is. And of course, it's not just the Old Testament prophets who talk about this kind of thing. Jesus himself addressed treasures on earth in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light which is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And of course, with the parable of the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus and asks how to obtain eternal life, Jesus tells him um, to keep the commandments. The young man says that he has. What still do I lack? And so Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And then come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. And then Jesus said to his disciples, truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Paul addresses this. He writes to Timothy, but godliness, is content, but godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But you, man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. 
So what we find here in James resonates with all these different passages, right? It's very much in sync with the teachings that we find in the Bible on the topic of riches, of riches unjustly obtained. And so now let's turn to James and look um, at specifically what, what, what James has to contribute to this discussion. Um, one thing that I should note is that James is notoriously difficult to structure and that can make it difficult to understand how the different pieces fit into the whole. Um, but there are some people who have put together some pretty compelling outlines for, for how it goes together. And what they see in the book is three main themes that kind of recur repeatedly throughout. Those themes are trials and uh, tribulations, um, wisdom, and riches and poverty. And again, they recur throughout the, um, through the letter. So when I was putting together um, the part on James for this um, New Testament survey course that I helped to prepare, I had emailed one of my professors at Regent because she um, had co-authored a commentary on James in the Zondervan exegetical commentary series. And I wanted to know what, what would she add if she was putting together a short you know, um, summary of James? What are, the, what are the points she would emphasize? And what she wrote to me was, I have come more and more to view purity as in single-mindedness, as the key to the epistle introduced in 1.4, and then what it looks like spelled out in 1.26 through 27. This is in contrast to the double-minded who doubt God and his goodness and generosity, who seek to make their own advantage, who prioritize money over faithfulness, and who take the easy path out rather than enduring the difficulties of various sorts. But single-mindedness can also be seen in prioritizing faithfulness in spite of temptation and doubt, in not overvaluing money and security and status, in controlling how one speaks of others, made in the image of God, no less. So that is how I see the key themes relating to the main theme. And I think she's on to something. As I've looked at James, it, 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 it strikes me as true that this theme of single-minded devotion to God and not being double-minded in various ways, it it, it, it applies to everything that James says in the letter. So don't be double-minded. No one can serve two masters. And I think it's going to be helpful to keep that in mind as we look at the different parts of this passage. So again, James 5, 1 through 3 says, Come now, you rich. Weep and cry aloud over the miseries that are coming on you. Your riches have rotted, and your clothing has become moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have rusted, and their rust will be a witness against you. It will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have hoarded treasure. I think this part of the passage offers us perspective. I think that's the biggest thing to take away. The reason for that is because riches are a distraction. They're a danger because what they do is they, they seduce our minds away from the one thing we should be focusing on, and they put them on other things, on distractions, on things that don't matter, on things that don't last. I think the primary emphasis here is exposing the foolishness of that kind of double-minded and wealth-distracted perspective because it prioritizes what does not last. James' emphasis here is on the transience of these things, on riches. So if we look at the other places in the letter that this theme comes up, I think it reinforces the idea that it really is the, 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 the transience, the effervescence, the passing nature of riches that 
that James is emphasizing. In, um, in chapter 1, verse 10, he'd said, but the rich person's pride should be in his humiliation because he will pass away like a wildflower in the meadow. For the sun rises with its heat and dries up the meadow. The petal of the flower falls off and its beauty is lost forever. So also the rich person in the midst of his pursuits will wither away. So the image there is just, just as, as like a flower is, is there and then it's gone. It's a passing thing. It's so transient. The riches and the pursuit of riches are very much the same thing. And so I think our passage is emphasizing that same point. One thing that I, I noticed as I, was, um, as I was preparing this, I was studying it, and forgive the discussion of grammar, but I do think it helps draw out James' point. Um, the verbs that he uses here, he puts in what's called the perfect tense, and that's something that's not, it, it's rare enough that when it comes up, you pay attention to it. And essentially what it is, is it, the perfect is talking about something that's completed, a completed action, usually in the past, and it's used to talk about something that's done before that has continuing relevance in the present. And so they'll say, they use the perfect tense to introduce the scriptures. It is written. It's the perfect because the scriptures were written before, but they have continuing relevance into the present. They have continuing bearing on our lives. And so it's weird to, it was weird to me at first that James would choose the perfect tense to talk about something that we would expect him to talk about in the future, right? We would expect James to say, your riches will rot. You know, your, your clothing will become moth-eaten. Your gold and silver will rust. But that's not what he does. He uses this verb tense to describe something that's already happened. And I think his point is about the transience of these things. Wealth, clothing, all those kinds of things are so transient that it's as if they're already rotting. You're, 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 the, the, these clothes that you're spending all this money on, rich people, they, it's, it, it, they're, they're so transient that it's as if they're already decaying. It's as if they're already moth-eaten. And so I, see, I, I think he's saying, is, is, is this really then what you're looking for? Is this really then what you're hoarding? This stuff that's already, even as it comes into your possession, is already decaying. Does that make sense? It's the rust that he says will be a witness against the rich. Because it's that decay, the fact that the things that they are prioritizing, the things that they're exploiting people to obtain, are already rusting. They're not lasting. They're not worth what is being given for them. And in the same way, it's that rust, James says, that will eat their flesh like fire. Because in the same way that our possessions decay, our lives are short as well. We are like the flowers in the field. We're here for a moment, and then we're gone. And it raises the question of what then? If that's the case, what then do we prioritize? It's a, it's a sobering thought, right? It's a, it's a thought that we've tried to push away, that we try to hide. Our society in particular hates to think about our mortality, hates to think about death. We try and make ourselves so that we can live forever. But James will have none of that because that's not true. We don't live forever. And we need to live lives that are in sync with reality, the truth of, of the way that the world is. Um, this was really this, this point, this, just the fact of our mortality, 
really hit home for me last year. I mean, of course, as a, as a nation, as a world, we've been dealing with this pandemic, and hundreds of, hundreds of thousands of people in our country have died over the past couple of years. But I had a good friend um, who I worked with before I went to Regent. Um, he was a, a brilliant engineer. He had his PhD in acoustics. Um, very, had his life very much together in great shape. Um, he was uh, 12 years older than me. And um, in 2019, he was 50 years old. He, he, he got married. We went, we went to his wedding. And then 2020 happened, and uh, we, I kind of fell out of touch with him. I assumed that he was just, you know, I, had, I didn't hear from him for some months, and assumed he was dealing with, you know, being a newly married man and the complexities of the pandemic and all of that. But then in September of last year, I got a call that he had um, come down with Lou Gehrig's disease and Alzheimer's. And by the time I was able to um, get in contact with him over Skype, he was nonverbal. He couldn't talk. Um, and before I could even get down there to visit, um, he had passed away. And again, this was somebody who was very, who, who you didn't see this coming. He was very fit. He was very, um, everything seemed to be going well. But then things happen, right? And his life, as with as so many others in these past years, um, fell to the ground. And it's a heavy thing. But it provides us that perspective. We need to live in light of those realities and prioritize the things that last and not the things that don't. And I look at other things like the paint on my house that I put on just a few years back, and there are places where it's peeling up again, right? I look at the, the new phone that I have, and it's currently the, the newest thing with the newest operating system, but I know that it's going to be obsolete before too long, and they're not going to update the operating system, and I won't be able to use the apps on, on it anymore. Woe to you, Apple. <laughs> so Jesus warns the rich, particularly those who have pursued and prioritized riches, because riches are fleeting. The warning applies to all of us who might be tempted to shift our single-minded focus on the kingdom of God to other things, like possessions. All right, so let's move on to the next section here, James 5, 4 through 6. He says, Look, the pay you have held back from the workers who mowed your fields cries out against you, and the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived indulgently and luxuriously on the earth. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person, although he does not resist you. So here we see how the danger of riches can grow more extreme than just their distracting potential, right? They can grow more extreme when the pursuit of that wealth is, it comes about through either the neglect or the exploitation of vulnerable people. And again, let's look at how James has addressed this elsewhere in the letter. He said in chapter 1, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and flawless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. So what do we really believe? Right, one of James's distinctive contributions to the New Testament is how strongly our faith and our actions are tied together. 
It's not what we say that shows what we believe. It's what we do. Do we really believe that our neighbor is made in the image of God? Right? They're, they're, they're icons with whom God shares the dignity and the respect that is owed to him. Do we really believe that? What about the poor among us? James warns, warns us strongly not to exploit those whose livelihood depends on us. Okay, some of us do have employees here. Some of us have people under our authority. All of us have people who serve us and who depend on us in different ways. All of us participate in economies that affect the workers who are a part of them. How do my choices affect everyone in that vast interconnected chain? Am I making choices that see to it that, that those people who are part of all of this are honored, are cared for with the same generosity with which God cares for me? And that's the perspective that we want to bring to our choices, to bring to how we spend our resources. If we pursue our wealth at the expense of or neglect of those, of others, there is a judge, and their cries have reached his ears. So James is forceful, okay? James is forceful about the danger of riches and the temptation toward double-mindedness and exploitation that they bring with them. And it's something that we don't want to take lightly. We do need to set these warnings in the context of Scripture, where, um, where the desire and vision for humanity as a whole is one of prosperity, right? There is a time and place in Scripture for lavish celebration. Well, the hope is for things like grain and new wine, for milk and honey, for each person sitting under their own vine and fig tree, right? Those, those, those are themes that we find in the Scriptures as well. We do see wealth used well in the Bible, right? You have the example of, of Boaz, for example, in the Old Testament, who, who is a person who does not exploit his workers, who, who cares for them, and not only for his workers, but who cares for the people who are outside, any, the, the, all the people in his sphere of influence. He makes sure that his workers leave enough behind so that the poor can come and gather food for themselves. He looks out for the vulnerable, vulnerable people who come across his path, like Ruth, and makes sure that she's cared for. And he gives, back that same, he gives back the generosity that God has offered him, right? In the New Testament, you see wealthy people there as well who are, who are depicted in, in a positive way. Um, there's Joanna, the wife of Cusa, the manager of Herod's household. There's Susanna, many others who support Jesus and his ministry from their own means. Paul has a bunch of people that he names, Lydia, Jason, Phoebe, Dionysius, Gaius, Erastus, and others who support him and who support his, his churches. And, and then you see examples of, of the wealthy churches caring for the impoverished ones, or even the not wealthy churches caring for the impoverished ones. Right, so, so there is a, a, the Bible's picture of wealth and resources and how we use it is nuanced, and we don't want to oversimplify the message there. But, the, the biblical, so the biblical vision for humanity is one of, of flourishing. It's not one of poverty. 
But this is the key point. It's not flourishing that becomes a distraction from God and his kingdom, and it is not flourishing that comes at the expense of others. So, what do we do then? How then do we live? James is clear, faith without works is dead, right? How do we put what we learn here, what this has to say to us, into practice? And there's a few things that I, I hope we would take away from, from reading a passage like this, difficult as it is. Um, the first is that we are accountable for what we do with our money. And that raises the question, well, then where is the line, right? Where, what's the balance? Like, what, 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 what's okay to spend on myself and what's not? Like, what do I give and what do I, what do I keep? And the Bible doesn't give us any kind of formula to answer that question. And the Bible leaves it to each individual person how they answer that question. That doesn't mean that it's arbitrary. It doesn't mean it doesn't matter and you can just do whatever you want. But it does mean that it's not up to me to look at other people to decide how they answer that question. That's left to each of us. And we need to seek the Spirit's guidance for how we would use the gifts that God has given to us. I think that the, the most helpful, the wisest counsel that I have heard on this comes from um, C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity. And I meant to grab the book and read it, but I don't have it with me. But basically what he says is that a good rule of thumb is that what we give should be substantial enough that it pinches, that it costs us something. If we are living at the same level as people in our sort of income bracket, then that probably means we should be giving more, he says. Again, that's a rule of thumb. Um, and I think that's helpful. I, I, I think it's a, it's, a, it's a good question to ask, like, do I give to the point where I'm still in my comfort zone, or do I give my resources where it actually is costing me something? And I think the Bible from start to finish provides us with an ethic of other-centered, self-giving love that is costly. And that should be reflected in how we approach our, 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 our wealth, the resources that we have. So I think that's a good rule of thumb. We're accountable. I think that it, it seems pretty clear to me that luxurious and self-indulgent lifestyles are off the table as far as the Bible is concerned. I, I for one, cannot reconcile that with what I read in these scriptures. But beyond that, it is up to each one of us how we approach these questions of money. So that's one thing that I think um, it's important to take away. Another thing that I would hope, and this isn't from the passage itself, but it's from surrounding passages, and I think it's a really important thing to keep in mind in light of the way that these conversations can affect us, and that is don't judge. Don't judge those who are wealthier than you, and don't judge those who are less wealthy than you. Just a few verses before the ones that we read, James says that there is one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and destroy, but you, who are you to judge your neighbor? And I think that's an important concept to carry into this issue. Because toxic resentment against the rich People, or, or, or I should say, those who are richer than me, just for being rich, is also bad. James also rails against bitter envy 
right, which he calls earthly, unspiritual, and de demonic. It's just as bad as the other stuff. And it's also a double-mindedness that's centered on wealth. It's just that it's wealth that's not yours. So don't judge others. Um, don't look at wealthier people than you and assume that you would spend money better than them if you had it. Until you are in a place where you have more resources, we, you don't know how you would act. You don't know how you would spend that money. I think it's a mistake to assume that if I were in that person's position, I would do things differently. I don't think that's helpful, and I don't think it produces the kind of um, posture and attitudes that we should hold. And similarly, I don't think that we should define rich as like just the one bracket above myself. That's not helpful either. Um, I think when we come to texts like this, the right posture is to say, how might I be implicated here? Not, yeah, those rich people really have it coming. Those other rich people really have it coming. How does this challenge me? And how can I live my life more faithfully? And then similarly, um, don't judge those who are below you economically, right? It's a mistake to assume that just because somebody has less resources than I have, that they haven't worked as hard, or they haven't been as prudent or disciplined, right? They may well just not have had as much given to them as I have. And it's, it also makes sense to be aware that, if, that, that for people who, are in, who, who have less resources than I have, that money that I spend without much thought may actually go a very long way for somebody in difficult circumstances. And that's something to keep in mind as we think about what we do with the resources God has given us. So we're accountable for what we would do with our money. Don't judge. Ask God how this applies to yourself rather than pointing towards others. And I want to also say that there's, there's, there's room for growth. All of us have room for growth here. But there's also, I think, a place for appreciation that I want to make in this, in this time. Because this, this sermon has been extremely convicting, for me at least, to prepare, to think about. It's hit very close to home in a lot of respects. And I'm sure that that's the case for all of us, because this is the society that we live in, right? And, and the society that we live in, the values that it has, like, I don't think that there, there can be any other choice but that this would cut close to home in, in some respects for all of us. But um, this is a generous church as well. I'm grateful to be a part of it. I have been a direct recipient of its generosity. I know many others who have been um, recipients of its generosity. The Spirit is at work here in these issues. I think the Spirit is shaping us. The Spirit has formed us. And we are, we, we, we are from, from what I can tell, people here are doing their best to live out of this kind of an ethic. Um, and so... Well, what I would hope we come away from this with is kind of an encouragement to seek out ways. Are there, are there ways that I can live more in sync with the Bible's teaching on, on riches, on how I use my resources? I hope it also encourages us um, and that there's gratitude for the things that we are, we are doing right here and that it doesn't feel like condemnation, but more like positive encouragement. Um, to keep, to keep walking in the direction that we should be walking. So what I, to, to that end, kind of the way I want to close is just to ask the question, what if we lived more out of these principles 
Again, James is all about faith being something that is embodied. Faith being something that is enacted. So what if we lived more? What if we acted out this, these principles more? What if we lived out these principles more? Let's assume that Miriam is right in seeing single-mindedness as the central theme of James. And let's take James seriously in his description of faith that, that is, is demonstrated by what we do more than by what we say. Right? What kind of lives might we live if we really took the biblical vision of riches and human beings and the kingdom of God seriously? Right? What if I believe that my neighbor, my fellow church member, or employee is made in the image of God? How would I treat them? If Jesus identifies with the poorest and most vulnerable so much that what we do to and for them is considered to be what we do to and for him, how would we treat them? If our lives are a vapor, our possessions are fleeting, and the future is fully beyond our control, what then would we buy? How would we spend our resources? Where, we would, in, where would we invest our, our energies? Where would we invest our resources? Our bodies will age. Our cars will rust. Our houses will rot. But there is a kingdom that will never end. And resurrected bodies will never die. So let us live like we believe that. Let me pray. Dear Lord, we thank you that you are a God who is generous. We thank you for the blessings that you have blessed us with. And we pray that as we go forward from this place, you would help us to live lives in which we bless others with the same generosity. Amen.